Hello, and welcome to the Heart Failure Beat. This is a special podcast from the editor of the Journal of Cardiac Failure. I'm Paul Houtman, Editor-in-Chief, joined by Michael Rich, Senior Associate Editor. And today we will be discussing a new position paper of the Heart Failure Society of America entitled Virtual Visits for Care of Patients with Heart Failure in the Era of COVID-19, a statement from the Heart Failure Society of America. It is an extremely timely and very important contribution during these difficult times. Before we jump in to discuss it further, we want to express our sincere hopes that Heart Failure Society of America members and staff, the JCF readership, and the heart failure community at large is staying safe and well. As I write in the editor's page in May, Winston Churchill, where he lived today, would tell us to be resolute, and we are. We are joined today by several of the co-authors, Dr. Aaron Gorodesky of Case Western and Dr. Para Goyal of New York Hospital Cornell. The other co-authors of the paper are Zachary Cox, PharmD, Jennifer Thibodeau, MD, Rebecca Ray, NP, Kismet Rasmussen, DNP, Joe Rogers, MD, and Randy Starling, MD. First off, congratulations, Aaron and Parag, on an excellent document. I mentioned that it is timely. Virtual visits are now extremely important and will likely change the way we approach outpatient care. While nothing can replace the stethoscope, you show an image of a patient pivoting to reveal neck veins. So let's start, therefore, with the purported benefits, which you nicely outline in Table 1. Aaron, can you perhaps review these for us? Absolutely. Paul, thank you so much for inviting us to speak on behalf of the paper and our co-authors. With this crisis, the COVID-19 crisis and pandemic, the use of virtual visits suddenly skyrocketed, where before only several hundred to several thousand were done in each state. Now there's reports of between 100 and 200,000 virtual visits happening in the time period. So really quite an incredible increase. The first aspect that we address in our statement is the potential benefits and the the value of virtual visits. And we believe that virtual visits can have benefits not only to the patient, but also to clinicians and healthcare systems. For patients, obviously, providing access is key. And this is an unusual time where patients are actually scared to come to hospital settings where other people with illnesses are, they're afraid of of catching the infection. So getting access in a way that's perceived to be safe is a tremendous benefit. With access comes the medical advice that they need. Virtual visits are also unique because they can allow family members and other people who are distanced and quarantined themselves to join the visit as well. The benefits to the clinicians are the ability to serve patients where otherwise they may not be able to because most of our clinics have been closed. Additionally, there's an obvious benefit in reducing the risk that any of us clinicians become infected ourselves in the clinic setting. And the patient-provider connection is key, and with virtual visits, that can be achieved. And finally, healthcare systems are facing a variety of challenges in this difficult time. Some hospital systems, especially those that we're hearing about in the news in New York and Michigan, some on the West Coast, have really have to rapidly reallocate resources and shift the workforce around key people need to be in the inpatient setting, some need to stay in the outpatient setting. And virtual visits allow that to be done in a very flexible manner. 
people can still be in their own homes and not utilize healthcare system resources at that moment. Also, because of policy changes and reimbursement changes that we'll touch on later in this conversation, uh, virtual visits now suddenly allow reimbursement and generation of revenue where they didn't before at a much higher level. So that part must exist and now exists. And then some creative folks around the country and the world have started using virtual visits to propagate research efforts, and that's another benefit for healthcare systems as well. That's great. Thanks, Aran. You mentioned that virtual visits have skyrocketed since the emergence of COVID and that there have been a number of policy changes that have enabled more widespread use of virtual visits. So I'm wondering if you could comment on the policy changes that have occurred and how they've helped us to conduct virtual visits. Absolutely. Thanks, Mike. With the onset of this pandemic in the United States, several things happened simultaneously at the level of the U.S. Congress, U.S. Executive Branch, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and also state governments that have triggered a variety of policy changes to make virtual visits feasible. And specifically, these were triggered both by an act passed by Congress on March 6th, and then the declaration of public health emergency by the President of the United States on March 13th of 2020. And specifically, the key policy changes happened in a few different venues. And these venues are in the area of licensing, in the area of privacy, in the area of where the patient can be located. Some relate to prior existing relationship with the patient and also to approach to prescribing. But let me touch base on each one of those briefly. As far as licensing, HHS, for the first time, has waived the requirement that healthcare professionals who hold licenses in the United States can now provide services in other states, assuming they have this equivalent license. The implications for that are that clinicians who care for patients who live across state borders are now allowed to do virtual visits across state borders. Also, HHS encouraged the medical boards of states, of all the states across the United States, to adopt this policy. In relationship to privacy, the main thing that happened is HHS suspended the HIPAA rules. The implications to virtual visits are that whereby a variety of virtual visit platforms that previously could not be used because they were not HIPAA compliant could now be used. This is huge because an overwhelming majority of clinicians prior to the COVID-19 pandemic never used virtual visits, never had any training on platforms, and yet everybody is familiar with one platform or another. So this flexibility was critical in rolling virtual visits out. Another area of policy is location of the patient. So prior to the pandemic, CMS did reimburse, but really with major limitations for virtual visits. They only reimbursed for patients who were in rural areas. And there was also a rule that patients had to initiate the visit out of a medical facility. So you can imagine that that was quite limiting, and that has now been waived in the setting of the pandemic. Additionally, CMS previously only allowed for virtual visits to be reimbursed amongst uh, clinicians and patients with an established relationship, but now that's been waived, and clinicians are able to use virtual visits for new consults and for patients they've never met. So I think that these are key policies that are all interwoven and now allow virtual visits to happen in ways that really they couldn't happen before. So you alluded to the issue of billing 
and this is something that clearly of major concern to practitioners. Can doctors and nurse practitioners and other practitioners bill for these virtual visits? And if so, how do they go about doing it? What codes are used and uh, so forth? The easiest way to think about it, which is also the accurate way to think about it, is that virtual visits are now reimbursed at par with what in-person visits are slash were. So many of us are aware of the CPT codes 99201 to 99205 for new patients and 99211 through 99215 for established patients. When a virtual visit happens, and by the way, a virtual visit is a synchronous audio and video interaction. So I'm not talking about plain vanilla telephone calls. We're really talking here about something that combines audio and video live. So when these interactions happen, these CPT codes that I mentioned for either new or established patients can be used. But it's important for clinicians to keep in mind that certain modifiers need to be added on top of these CPT codes to identify that these were virtual visits. So specifically, this would be modifier GT for Medicare or Medicaid beneficiaries or modifier 95 for patients who have commercial insurance, commercial payers. If people just keep that in mind, it makes it quite simple. Bill, the codes that you already know, but don't forget to add the modifier. And we include that detail in in table three of the statement. So hopefully clinicians will find that helpful. Great. Another question relates to the available platforms. There's a large number of platforms. uh, We've heard that many platforms not previously allowable due to HIPAA requirements are now able to be used for virtual visits. And I'm wondering if you could talk about things that clinicians should look for in choosing a platform. What are advantages, disadvantages, the various types of platforms? Well, I can address that as well. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, the virtual visit platforms that could be used had to be HIPAA compliant. And that entails both certain details of security, but also having an established business associate agreements which with each respective clinician or their healthcare system. So multiple such products exist, existed before the pandemic and still currently exist and can still be used currently. But what's different now is that HHS and, and other commercial payers are now uh, accepting and allowing the use of a variety of consumer apps that previously could not be used for virtual visits. So these are consumer apps that are familiar in one form or another to most of us in the United States. Apple FaceTime, Facebook Messenger, Video Chat, Google Hangouts, Zoom, Skype. These are common consumer apps that now can be used. Now, some of these have their downsides, so you have to think carefully. If you want to use Apple FaceTime, there's a chance you may be revealing your phone number to patients, and you may not want to do that. And therefore, that may not be the best tool for you, but you can use it if you'd like. Other tools that I find extremely useful are Zoom, with Zoom allowing multiple users in at the same time on what we've been doing at university hospitals as we have our nurses join the visits, as well as patients' family members who may be other locations. We found that super helpful. Another app that we've used that has some value to it is the Doximity app on the iPhone, which is super simple. 
through the app, you dial the patient's phone number, they get a text message with a link and they just click on the link and a video screen appears. So it's extremely simple and doesn't require any sophistication. So really a variety of platforms, we list many of them on table four, and there probably are more than we're even aware of. In the paper, we do make an important point that it's probably good practice to adopt a platform now that will be HIPAA compliant in the future when the HIPAA rules are reinstated. That way you and your practice kind of get used to using the right platform. So that's something to consider. Well, thanks, uh, Aaron. I'd like to ask uh, Parag to maybe address, because I think you started to do so, what makes a successful visit and what should the clinician do in preparing for a visit? What elements are you really asking the patient to prepare for and on the physician provider and what should you have available to you when the visit is underway? Yeah, it's an, an important question to think about because this this format of interacting with patients is certainly different than what we're all used to. I mean, I think the first step is really thinking, the way I think about it is I break it down into preparation before the visit, activities during the visit, and then activities after the visit. Before the visit, it's of course important to figure out, well, which platform or which technology you're going to use. Each institution may actually have already a preferred platform, one of many that Iran already outlined. For example, at Cornell, we have a a platform embedded in our electronic medical record. You want to make sure that the patient has consented for a virtual visit, and that can be verbal or it can be written. And then I think it's important to set yourself up to be in a location that is quiet. This is a professional interaction, so I think it's important to keep that in mind. And so I like to make sure that I'm dressed appropriately and professionally so that I'm not distracted and I can give the patient all the attention that they deserve. I then like to actually open up the electronic health record and have it open while I'm interacting with patients. If questions arise or issues, I don't specific details. I don't specifically recall about the patient. It gives me an opportunity to look things up, labs, prior echocardiograms, et cetera. Once the visit is set up, I think about it as the usual type of visit in the office. Maintain eye contact, try to engage with patients. I think it's important to keep in mind that this is a little different than usual business. And so being sensitive to our patients and appreciating that this is a little different and patients may feel a little uneasy, I think is important to acknowledge and recognize that and offer ways that we can make them feel more comfortable. I typically will conduct a history and physical as I usually would. You ask the usual review of systems questions. You can do your usual medication reconciliation. An extra bonus here of doing a virtual visit with regard to medication reconciliation is typically the patient is in their home. And so in addition to sharing what medications they take, they can actually show us the pill boxes or the pill bottles. And it's an extra layer, I think, of med reconciliation to ensure that patients are actually taking what they report taking. I think we've all been in the scenario where patients show up to a visit, don't bring their pills, and can't quite remember everything they're taking. So I think it's a really actually a nice bonus of doing virtual visits. And then for a physical exam, actually, you can do a physical exam on some level with a virtual visit, general appearance, certainly, but then you can actually move the camera or have perhaps another member in the home move the camera where you can look at neck veins, you can look at lower extremity edema. If you're creative, there's a lot of really great information you can actually pull from these visits. 
similar to an in-person visit, I think it's important to make sure that the patient understands the discussions, the plan. Just like in person, I tend to like using sort of teach back in the office. I actually will typically write instructions or print out instructions. I encourage patients to sort of take notes for themselves so that I know that whatever we discussed, the patient will be able to remember, refer to, and subsequently act upon at the end of the visit. And then before the visit ends, another piece of this, I think, as we're all learning and trying to optimize this interaction and process is to actually ask the patient at the very end, you know, how the experience went for them, what worked well, what didn't work well. I think that is helpful to inform future interactions, not only with that particular patient, but also for future patients. Because honestly, I think we're all sort of learning best ways of using virtual visits. At the end of the visit, you document as you usually would. Iran had already mentioned the processes for billing, which of course, importantly, requires that modifier. And then messaging patients through portals, which are actually very common now, calling patients with follow-up a few days later if needed, arranging laboratory testing, ordering medications through their pharmacy are all very typical things that you would find for an in-person visit. And so it's very similar in that way. And then importantly, before ending the visit, it's important to plan for the next visit. Typically, the way I have it in my office, the patient would leave the room and then get set up with the administrative assistant. That may not be the case here. And so thinking about when the next visit is and thinking about what works for the patient's calendar may be beneficial. Well, thanks. That's very comprehensive. But I, I suppose before we conclude, we should mention there's an elephant in the room. And, and that elephant is, of course, access. And the entire enterprise relies on Wi-Fi access, which may be an issue in some rural communities, and a degree of facility with technology, which can be limited in certain patient groups, maybe most specifically in the elderly. Can one of you address this? And is this a teachable skill? Is there a way to get Wi-Fi access where patients don't have it? Do you rely simply on telephone call point? What's the best approach to those patients who have these limitations? This is certainly not going to be a solution for everybody. There are parts in the U.S., as you point out, Paul, that have low bandwidth or in inner city populations, for example, they may not have all the equipment that you need due to socioeconomic reasons. So it can't be a solution for everybody. There are patients where a virtual visit can't be done or fails. And then a telephone call, I think, is critical. You never want to abandon a patient and not connect. In the long run, I think that the COVID-19 pandemic is probably going to lead a desire and a thirst to have more connectivity than ever. Now, whether that is put together by collaboration between state governments and large companies or is even pushed through medical institutions remains to be seen. In the literature, there are examples of forward-thinking hospital systems that have gone out of their way to try to provide connectivity and even basic tools like tablets or phones to patients to allow them to connect. One of the concerns that we express in the paper is that we don't want to see the rise of virtual visits worsening disparities of care. And this is an area that's not completely answered, and I think we have to think very carefully about. I think we have an opportunity here to think through the best way to deliver care to our patients. And the concern about widening disparities, I think, is applicable broadly to any technology. 
So I think to avoid that, we all have to be sensitive to this and develop strategies, not so much on a local level. It's not a strategy that I need to personally develop or even a single institution needs to develop. But think about it as a society, as the medical field of reaching all of our patients. And to do that, some strategies might include actually providing sort of hubs or devices that can go into the home that actually provides Wi-Fi and subsequently allows people to utilize their technology to reach their doctors. One of the objectives here of the statement that we hope will be achieved is just really broader embracing of this technology. I do want to say, though, on a positive note, first of all, there are many reports that older adults in the United States are one of the fastest growing populations of users of the internet and social media. No one should assume that older adults are unable to do this without asking the question first. And even if many older adults don't have the know-how or the technology, it's very, very likely that someone in their social network does a cousin, a a daughter, a a neighbor who has a smartphone or a tablet who can help them and is very happy to help them. So these things should be kept in mind. And I'll take it a step further to say, I think we need processes that we don't just leave it up to the patient to figure it out, but we are actually processes in place where we can provide them the support and the strategies to engage the additional resources that they may need. That's very well said. And I'd like to thank both of you, Dr. Gordeski and Dr. Goyal, for your important contribution. Dr. Rich and I were glad to be part of the process. And with your cooperation as authors, the JCF and the Heart Failure Society of America may have set a world record for turnaround time from submission to online posting. Well done, and thanks for joining us. And I want to thank our listeners as well. We will continue to record podcasts highlighting an author or authors of particularly impactful papers published by the Journal of Cardiac Failure. And please look online for an important paper about troponin and COVID infection, plus a case report about COVID infection in a patient with an implanted LVAD. Until next time, this is Paul Houtman along with Michael Rich for the Journal of Cardiac Failure. 